Well, like always, before we uh, start diving into God's word for what he has for us today, let's just open uh, again with a word of prayer. And Father, we thank you for uh, this time that we have to uh, come together to look at uh, yet again another parable, uh, that is the parable of the lost coin. I pray that uh, as we examine this text, uh, that we get a greater understanding of the context Uh, And most importantly, what you meant and what you have for us to learn today. And then I pray that we would take that truth and we would apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, So as a way of reminder, because I know that it was a while ago that we were last in the parables, I think like two months ago. Um, So we need to do a little bit of a recap on what we learned last time. And so, I would like to start with Luke chapter 15, right in verse 1. It says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And this is where our parable picks off because picks up. Because if you remember that this is what Jesus is responding to. He is responding um, to their questions, to that statement, uh, the fact that sinners are drawing near to him and he receives them. Uh, you remember that they meant this as a diss, but in all reality, this is truly the purpose that Jesus came. He did come uh, to seek and save the lost. And so he tells them the first parable. And if you recall, I noted that each parable will start to begin, uh, will get more and more personal as it goes along. Uh, you have the 99 sheep, one of them is lost. You have the 10 coins, one of them is lost. And then eventually we'll get to the two sons, and one of them is lost. And so he told them this parable, What man of you, having a 100 sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? Again, this is what every good shepherd should and would do, and the Pharisees would have understood this. Yes, a sheep is lost, and the shepherd's job is to take care of the sheep, so naturally he should go find the sheep. And he should search until he finds it, or again, he would have to bring it back and prove that it had died somehow. And when he has found it, he lays it on his, on, he lays it on his shoulders, and he rejoices in this. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, this is the connection, I tell you there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And so again, the shepherd has a loss, he searches for him, he carries him, it's his burden, and he has joy throughout the whole time. Now, some people say this is very, the, these passages are the apex of Luke's writing. Uh, they happen to be right in the middle. Um, the parable of the lost sheep is a very popular one, and people find much um, joy in reading it. Uh, and it is the same with the parable of the lost coin. Uh, And so he continues on this thought, and let's just read that passage. And he says, or what woman? So again, the argument that he's defending against is all the way back in verses 1 through 2. And so he says, or what woman, 
Having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. When you're reading those passages in a line like that, you can see that there are a lot of similarities. And in fact, both parables point to the same objective, which we will get to. And so it can be a little bit difficult to preach on one parable and then the next parable because you're almost reiterating the same thing. And I almost thought about uh, not preaching on this and moving on to the parable of the prodigal son, which, again, is going to be almost on the same topic. Um, but it is not my job to choose which passages I preach on. I'm just supposed to preach the word, the whole counsel of God. So we are going to start here in verse 8. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one of them, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? The first point we're going to be looking to is seeking to redeem. Uh, much like he, the uh, shepherd was seeking the lost, uh, she is seeking to redeem that lost coin. And this is a great loss. Uh, This was a very significant loss, even though it is just one coin. Um, But before we talk about the loss specifically, we need to talk about the woman. Women, uh, during the times of uh, the New Testament, uh, were sadly not highly regarded. Uh, They were kind of seen as rather low on the totem pole, if you will. Uh, Actually, if I mentioned when we talked about shepherds that the Pharisees wouldn't have liked to be referred to as a shepherd, right? Because Jesus is telling them, like, if you were a shepherd, right, they would have hated that. Like, no, I'm not a shepherd. What are you talking about? I'm a Pharisee. Uh, And then he's doing the same thing here where they wouldn't have liked to be referred to as a woman. He's saying, put yourself as a woman. What if you were a woman? They would have been like, I don't want to be a woman. Uh, women were sadly sometimes seen as insignificant uh, in that time period. Uh, And just to prove this point, there were a few laws, like husbands could divorce their wife, but not the other way around. Um, Wives suspected of cheating had to take a jealousy test. You can see that in Numbers um, 5.22-31. And a father could also sell the daughter to pay a debt, Uh, And he could also sell his son, except for the son was freed after six years. And so, uh, over time, uh, through different uh, rabbinic laws as well, women were kind of, uh, you will say, pushed down a little bit. However, I do need to point out that they were equal in God's eyes. Um, What God saw and what man saw were two different things. And you can take this all the way back to Genesis. Uh, We actually looked at this in the marriage class last week, right? That God uh, made a man in his own image. And when he made the man, he said it is not good that man should be alone, right? It is not good that he should be alone. Uh, In other words, it is good to have a partner, and he literally takes a piece of the man and makes a woman. And though through the fall, that it is said that man was supposed to rule over her. We see that again in the New Testament as well, in Ephesians 5.22. 
What I really need you to turn to, uh, to make sure this is super clear, is go to Galatians 3.28. That's important that we read this. Galatians 3.28. And it says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, uh, uh, nor free, There is neither male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And so in the eyes of God, when he looks at man and he looks at woman, right, they are equal in his eyes. One is not greater than the other, even though they might have different positions in life. Uh, And very interestingly enough, I noted that even though they didn't like shepherds, Uh, There were a lot of shepherds uh, throughout their history, uh, David, Moses, and many others. Uh, But also, if you went to Psalm 23, you guys all know it, right? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. So here, God is pictured as a shepherd. But if you go to verse 5, it says, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Um, which is kind of interesting because could you imagine who in that time period prepared the tables? And so our God here is being referred to as a woman who prepares the table before his enemies. And so even the Pharisees, they wouldn't want to be regarded as a shepherd or a woman. Um, God, in Psalm 23, refers to himself as both. And you might say at this point, well, it's very sad that during that time period that women were so uh, looked down upon, and that is not truly the full story. In fact, even uh, widows and women had rights of their own. Uh, For instance, you might remember that widows had the privilege of gleaning the fields. You learned that from Ruth uh, last year, or that would be two years ago, I think, Um, they also shared a portion of the third, uh, third year tithe with the Levite. And so I just want to point that out. So even though they didn't have maybe it was a male-dominated society, women still had rights of their own. So, so that is the woman. That is the first part of this. And then you have the coins. Uh, and this is a very particular coin. Now, this coin would have been like a, a denarii, a day's wage. You find this uh, in many different uh, parables and so forth. Um, so it would have been a day's wage, and it could have been a few things, and I'll tell you which it, I think it is. It could have been her saving money for an emergency, and so losing the one coin would have been a big deal because it's one whole day's wage. Uh, She could have lost it in many different ways. Maybe it was held in by a pouch with a string. The string came loose. One of the coins dropped. It doesn't really say how she lost the coins because that is irrelevant to the story. The fact is she lost one of them. The other um, is that a Jewish bride would wear a headband of ten silver coins Now, before the wedding, she would save up for these ten coins or it was given to her by her father. And they would wear this as a symbol of their marriage. And so you can almost think of this as a wedding ring. Uh, And when I read this story, that is the scenario that plays out in my head. Um, Because it's not just that she's lost some money and she still has nine coins. It's that 
She's almost essentially lost her wedding ring. She's lost one of the diamonds in it. Uh, And that's a big deal. Uh, You don't want to do that. Uh, Even nowadays, uh, some of you maybe have lost a wedding ring, hopefully now, or maybe you put it, uh, Amy does this all the time, sorry, um, but <laughs> she, uh, she'll put it on our little vanity, and then she'll forget it's there, and we'll be driving somewhere, and she'll be like, I lost my wedding ring, and then she'll remember that it's on the vanity, but there's that panic, right, that you have, like, I can't believe I lost that thing that's so important to me, because it represents, in some ways, my marriage. <clears throat> Now, uh, so it was a very important piece of coin that she lost. And if it was lost, in addition to it being uh, related to her marriage, there would also be an evil meaning attached to that loss. And then there would also be shame brought on to the woman because of this. And so this was a big deal for her. She needs to find this coin back uh, because of the repercussions of that. Now, when you're thinking of lost, or being lost, or in particular this coin being lost, I like what Wearsby wrote. He said, being lost is like being out of service. If something is lost, then it is of no use. A sheep lost has no value. A coin lost has no value. Uh, If you simply can't reach that thing that you own, even... If it is value in itself, it is valueless to you because you don't have it anymore. It is lost to you. Which brings us to a very important point, and that is our value and where it comes from. In James 4.4, fairly popular verse, we read, You adulterous people... Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And I bring out this verse because it takes it to a whole other level. Because, uh, as you might guess, we are the coin in this parable. Uh, We are the ones who, in a sense, uh, she lost the coin, but we ran away from him. Uh, We didn't want to be uh, either in the bag or on the head. Uh, And it's I like this verse because it points out the fact that you can't be in friendship with the world and have a personal relationship with God at the same time, right? Being in friendship with the world is enmity with God and makes... You, an enemy of God. And before we were saved, hopefully all of you come, came to know Christ, uh, that is where we were, an enemy of God. It's not that we were just on the sidelines waiting to see which side we were going to choose. It's that we were with the world as an enemy of God. I also want to take you to another passage. Uh, that's going to help us throughout the rest of this parable. And that's Job 18. Uh, So you can turn there, Job 18. We're going to hang there for a second. Now in Job 18, 1 through 4, uh, Bildad here is pretty much rebuking Job. And I want to focus in at verses 5 through 9. 
And it says, indeed, the light of the wicked. And so he begins this discourse on talking about the wicked. He says, the light of the wicked is put out. And the flame of his fire does not shine. The light is dark in his tent, and his lamp above him is put out. His strong steps are shortened, and his own schemes throw him down. For he is cast into the net by his own feet, and he walks on its mesh. A trap seizes him by the heel. A snare lays hold of him, and we'll stop there. What I want to point out here is what he you notice that he puts the emphasis on the person's actions here. His strong steps are shortened, and his own schemes throw him down. For he is cast into the net by his own feet, and he walks on its mesh. Uh, This is a wicked man who is willingly doing this. Um, By and through his own schemes, he is walking into the net, which is... Uh, a snare for him. Um, But he wants to do it. And that's where we were before Christ. We wanted to. And that's where we need to get to to admit that we need Christ. Uh, We held on to the world, the things of this world. Uh, And it's because of Christ we are freed from them. And so there is that great loss, that coin, which represents us. And then we have the great search She lights the lamp. And one thing we have to understand is uh, that houses during that time aren't like ours, obviously. Uh, And sometimes there was no windows or maybe one to two windows. And so you can imagine in a house with no windows or maybe one or two, and those windows would have had like a wooden uh, shutter type thing on them, so it would have been even darker that you need to then have a light in order to see things. And so she lights a lamp. And a lamp is very interesting as well, because a lamp was considered to be the Palestinian peasants' one luxury. It is the one thing that even they had, and it is one thing that is needed. And a lamp is very significant in the Bible uh, and during those times. Sleeping uh, without a lamp was a sign of extreme poverty. And so when you would go, if you were to walk the streets at night, you would look into people's windows and hopefully there was a light. And if there wasn't a light there, then that means that person was probably very, very, very poor. And this is interesting because late travels, travelers would be traveling at night and they would look in houses to see if there was a lamp lit. And if there was a lamp lit, then they knew that there was life in the house. If there wasn't a lamp lit, then again, maybe it was extreme poverty or maybe no one even lives there. And so lamp becomes a symbol for life if your lamp is lit then there is life in the home. If a lamp isn't lit, then there probably isn't life in the home. And you can see this play out through Scripture. Uh, You can see it in uh, Matthew 5.16, let your light shine before others. Uh, There is a certain element of that light being life. Let your life shine. Uh, You could think of a psalm, uh, 1828, 
where uh, it is told that uh, for the psalmist, God lights his lamp, which lightens his darkness. And so it brings life to his darkness. There's that symbol. And then you can see the flip side of that, where if you don't have a lamp, it is a hint to lifeless or wickedness. And that's where we're getting back to our passage in Job. Remember Job uh, 18.5. It says, Indeed, the light of the wicked is put out, and the flame of his fire does not shine. And so thinking about that as the lamp and the light being the life of him, there is no life in this man. He is a wicked man. The light is dark in his tent, and his lamp above him is put out. Right? He's saying he's dead inside. There's nothing in him. So, um, this, when you hear that, just remember lamp, light, and life, uh, they can almost be seen as synonymous terms. Uh, They are all one and the same, really. And we will discuss that in a moment. And so, she lights this lamp, and then she also does another thing. Getting back to our passage, she lights a lamp and then she sweeps the house. And so she has to literally upend her house. And again, she wouldn't have a whole lot of uh, couches and that kind of thing, but she would have a rug maybe made of lamb's clothes. She would have pillows and that kind of thing. And the houses, again, weren't the same. And there was probably a dirt floor that had been compacted. And so she has to sweep a dirty floor. And so this is very, very difficult. But she's tedious in this. She's really looking for this lost coin. She needs to find it. <clears throat> and when, and then she finally does find it, right? She seeks diligently until she finds it. She had her mind set on that coin, and she was going to find it because she needed to. Which brings us to our next point, which is a great savior. A great loss, a great search, a great savior. And so obviously, at this point you, I shouldn't say obviously, but at this point you may see the woman as representing Christ, seeking the lost sinner. And the lost sinner is the coin Uh, The coin that is doing nothing this whole time. The coin can't do anything at this point in time. The only thing the coin can do is sit there and wait to be found by the woman. Uh, Much like us, uh, lifeless, dead in our trespasses and sin, uh, incapable of moving. See, Christ, uh, like the lamp, is the light of the world. And he shines uh, in us and through us. And so turn to 2 Corinthians 3.18. Corinthians 3.18. And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory are being transformed uh, into the same. Oh, I'm sorry. I want Second Corinthians four five through six. Uh, Three eighteen is later. 
All right, four, what we have proclaimed is not of ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servant for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so that is Jesus, like the woman, shining that light, seeking that which is lost. Uh, He is the light of the world. And at this point in time, really, the Pharisees, I mean, hopefully should be catching on, but they obviously didn't because Jesus has to say one more parable that truly, really gets to the heart of the matter. Uh, It's just that they could not imagine, which it's simple for us to say, and we say all the time, that God seeks us out. Um, But for them, they couldn't imagine that a God would seek out a lost sinner. Uh, Not only that, but they were to be seeking to save the lost. And so, you have a Savior who is seeking to redeem, and then you have the lost redeemed. And it says, and when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the lost coin that I had lost. And this is the restoration. And you have to imagine the excitement of this woman finding this lost coin, uh, which would have been difficult. Again, it's very dirty. The coin at this point is very dirty and hard to see. And so she finds it. And she is cleaning it off, so excited to put it back uh, where it belongs. And you think about this, and the woman had to search diligently, uh, but Christ uh, had to die. As the woman cleans the coin, so Christ cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And it's very interesting, sometimes... Often you don't want to look too deeply into parables, into the little nitty-gritty. Some people go like really crazy with all the different things. But truly in this case, you can often think, you can think about how coins have the image of their ruler. And so too do we, or we should, bear the image of Christ. And that is where we get to our 2 Corinthians 3.18, which says... And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is spirit. What is he saying there? That we should be more and more looking like Christ himself who saved us. Uh, We should start to look like him. Uh, from one degree to another, some of you I look and see, and you are just beaming as almost if you are like Christ himself, and others of you, well, I don't know. But, <laughs> I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Um, uh, but we should be continually looking more and more like Christ as believers. And so you have this restoration And then you would have a relieved heart. And there is that excitement of finding it, and then that relief 
right? She knew that if she didn't find that, there would be consequences, shame on her life. And that relief of finding it and knowing, like, it's done, I found it, I don't have to worry about that anymore. And it really got me to thinking, uh, she was excited and she proclaims, I have found the coin that I had lost, and Jesus proclaimed, it is finished. Uh, And I never really thought, at least too much, uh, about the relief uh, that Jesus might have felt uh, after it was finished. Uh, he goes from the agony of Gethsemane, uh, looking to the cross his whole life, knowing that that was what he was there to do, uh, to really the relief of ascension, uh, knowing that his work had been done. And I was just picturing him um, as he's walking on the beach, calling out to the disciples in John 21, and just probably the little bit, I don't want to say lighthearted, but there probably would have been a little bit of weight lifted off his shoulders as he's seeing them again and telling them to go forth and proclaim the good news. And so there is the restoration, a relieved heart, And then a time for celebration, much like the parable of the shepherd. She calls together her friends and neighbors. And all of this would have made sense to them. They all would have understood it, right? Much like the parable of lost sheep, they understood that should have sought it, should have rejoiced when they find it. She should look for it, she should rejoice. And again, it's just pointing to their hard attitude. They cared more about the coin than they did for the lost sinners. Which brings us to the last point, which is the joy of the Redeemer. It says, just so I tell you, there is joy before angels, the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now he Again, there's that connection which says, I just so, and so everything that you learned about the parable, we're bringing it into reality now. I tell you, there's joy before the angels of God. Now, we kind of have to go to Matthew's account of the parable of the lost sheep uh, to understand that a little bit better, which is Matthew eighteen ten. Matthew 18.10 says, See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven, their, heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. And he says, what do you think if a man has a hundred sheep? And so very interestingly, Jesus starts out with talking about the angels before God and that they always see the face of the Father. Now bringing it back to Luke, he says, I tell you there is joy before the angels of God. Uh, Meaning that God is joyous over these repentant sinners and it is before the angels who always see his face. I want to take you to... Ezekiel. Ezekiel 18. Ezekiel 18. I want to show you 
really the joy of God. Uh, And that is God's desire as well. Um, Because, well, let's just read these verses. We'll start in verse 21, Ezekiel 18, 21. But if a wicked man, wicked person turns away from all his sins he has committed and keeps all the statutes and does what is just and right, he shall surely live. He shall not die. None of his transgressions that he has committed shall be remembered against him for the righteousness that he has done. He shall live. Verse 23. This is where I want to make sure we focus in on. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live. And so his desire is repentance. That is what he wants. He wants us to turn from sin and live to righteousness. And again, actually like verse 32, even better. Uh, Ezekiel 18.32, For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God, so turn and live. It is that simple. And God desires us so much that he sent his son, right? John 3.16, we all have that memorized when we're a kid if you grow up in the church. And he desires for us to reach repentance and live. And so, I just love that. So turn and live. Again, he came to seek and to save the lost, those who realize that they needed to turn, the ones who realized that they needed to repent. And so God has this joy over sinners' repentance. Again, back in our text, there is joy before the angels of God. And through this the angels would also be joyous, as we should be as well. But there is one last point I want to make sure that we really look at. With the parable of the lost sheep, uh, the emphasis is almost more in the end about the 99 righteous persons who need no repentance, because he brings it up in that one, that there's 99 sheep and they don't see their need for repentance, but I'm seeking the one that is lost. And this one, it really kind of boils down just to the fact that there is joy before the angels, as we learned, and also that it is over one sinner who repents. Uh, And that is very significant for our lives today. Uh, It's not just that God is joyous that we are all here at this point in time. We all have repented, if you have. Uh, It's that every single one of us, uh, if you repented, that there was joy in God because of that repentance. Um, Because he came to seek and save you. And so it's a singular, every single one of them. And that brings me to the joy of the redeemed. Uh, We should have joy. Uh, And Pastor Bill has talked recently about joy, and really it's not that complicated of a thing, and it's something that we should all have. 
John 15, 11 says, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Uh, we have that joy. Uh, there might be joy before the angels of God, but there is joy before his children as well. And that joy should be infectious. Uh, we should all be joyful. And there's uh, just two different, three different reasons why. And joy because you're saved, knowing that you did turn through the power of Christ and you can live. Uh, but really, joy because you have that relationship with God. And I have this quote from R.A. Torrey, who wrote, He is the source of all joy, that being God. I presume everybody has known someone whose life was just radiant. Joy beamed out of their eyes. Joy bubbled over their lips. Joy seemed to fairly run from their fingertips. You could not come into contact with them without having a new light come into your own life. They were great electric batteries charged with joy. If you look into the lives of such a radiantly happy person, not those people who are sometimes in the valley, but those people who are always radiantly happy, you will find that everyone is a man or woman who spends a great deal of time in prayer alone with God. God is the source of all joy, and if we come into contact with him, his infinite joy comes into our lives. And so we have that relationship with God now. And that relationship that we have with him should be the source of our joy and what continues our joy throughout our life. And the last thing is we should have joy because when others get saved as well. I think too often uh, someone comes to Christ and we're like, oh, that's great. Uh, and that's almost our response. Uh, and it's not just great. Uh, it's amazing. Uh, every single time it happens, no matter how many times it happens in your life, when you see someone comes to Christ, that is an amazing, astounding event in that person's life where God took them to a place of being an enemy of him to being in a relationship with him. And we should always uh, be astounded by that. And we should praise God for that. And we should, in a sense, party with that person uh, for they were lost and they are now found. So in conclusion... Uh, God is like the woman who is seeking us, and he seeks us through the Holy Spirit. And he has redeemed us through Christ and joyous over our repentance. And that is the Father. And so he is seeking to redeem. Uh, the lost are redeemed. And then we have the joy of the Redeemer. And with that, let's just close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you uh, for, again, this text. And we know that uh, any time in Scripture something is repeated, in particular when these themes are repeated, 
uh, three times in three different ways uh, at different lengths that we know that this is something we need to take a deep, hard look at, uh, examine our own lives. Uh, Hopefully we acknowledge the fact that we were that lost sinner, that lost sheep, that lost coin, and that we needed you, and you sought us out, and you paid the price for our sin uh, so that we might die to it and live to righteousness. And I pray that we would never take that lightly uh, when others who we know had turned from their sin, I pray that we would all rejoice. Uh, We would call together our friends and our neighbors, uh, and that would be a joyous occasion. I pray that we would never take these things lightly, that we would always keep them on the forefront of our minds. Uh, In difficult times, we can remember to rejoice, for you are the source of our joy. And we just thank you and praise you for everything you do for us. In Jesus' name, amen.